But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. If one did not know his Bible better, he might think that this verse was written in the New Testament. So it has been, uh, sadly, with uh, many Jews who have not believed in their own Messiah and being presented with the words of Isaiah 53 uh, are put off. Do not read me the New Testament. When in fact, this was from their own Hebrew Bibles. The Messiah, he revealed himself under the law and through the prophets. And yet it was somewhat obscure. Uh, there, were, there were mists. There was haze. One could see the figure of the Messiah coming upon the crest of the hill, but it was indistinct. It was not uh, crisp and, 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 and clear. And there were many questions that even the godliest of believers in the Old Testament would have had. As Peter alludes to the prophets themselves who searched and inquired what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ that was in them signified when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. But now we hear these words and with the reliable authentic records of the eyewitnesses of the disciples, our minds are immediately taken to Calvary, are they not, brothers and sisters? He fulfilled there, hanging between two thieves, having been condemned under Pontius Pilate and rejected by the Jewish nation, who when they had opportunity to have him freed, instead they chose Barabbas, a murderer, Now we read in retrospect these glorious words of the ancient prophecy and we take them ourselves by faith. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. And as we observe the Lord's Supper, as oft as we do this, we do it in remembrance of him. Well, let us reflect upon this great prophecy of Isaiah 53 and verse 5. And we will devote this morning significantly to this exposition, but we'll continue it in the afternoon. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Dear friends, what we have here in prophecy is his pain, our peace. His pain, our peace. Five points this morning. The first being, we have here a weighty transaction. A weighty transaction. Now, as I was uh, driving down the road and thinking about the choice of words here, uh, transaction is a word that oftentimes we associate with um, the business that we do in the marketplace, we go to the store, we purchase, and we receive a receipt for a formal transaction. You give me this product, I give you uh, the amount of my labor in currency and money. And so there, if there's any doubt as we're walking out the store, perhaps we've not put it in a bag and maybe one of the associates comes up and asks, can I please see your receipt? Well, we show them that a proper transaction has happened. 
So that whereas before it would have been illegal and a violation of the law to have simply taken it off the shelf and then bring it to my car, now that transaction being completed, it is mine. Just as much as the cash in your drawer is now yours. And so I don't want to minimize in any way the great transaction that we are considering by using a word that seems perhaps a bit mundane to us, but it was a transaction, and it was the most significant of all transactions that there ever has been. His pain, our peace. It was a weighty transaction. There was a weighty need. Well, you know young people, as soon as you start earning your own money, for some of you it begins to burn a hole in your pocket. And before long, you have to start distinguishing between wants and needs. And some needs are more imperative than others so that once you come to a certain age, you're, you're on your own, sometimes things get a little bit tight and then you have to prioritize which bill to pay. Hopefully it doesn't come to that too often, but sometimes it, it happens and you have to ask, which one do I pay? Which one is weightier and more significant? Well, there was a weighty need. There was an untold number of sinners whom God from all eternity loved and would not allow them to perish, but the demands of his law said they must pay and pay dearly. And brothers and sisters, the wages of sin is Death. Have you ever driven past a cemetery and, and stopped with yourself and, and observed that each grave is a transaction? That each headstone is, may I say it without being uh, in any way crass, it is a fearsome receipt that there was a payment made. Yes, friends, you sin, you die. And right now, young people, you're, you're not thinking of your death. We, we, we don't usually do that when we're healthy and when we're young and we're so full of life. But if you're a sinner, you must pay. Your soul must be stripped from its body. The body that you love and that you care for, that you preserve. That body must suffer. That body must go to the ground and decay as a payment to God. And dear friends, it doesn't stop there. The Lord Jesus Christ makes it evidently clear that the payment doesn't stop at the grave. Don't think that those stone receipts at the cemetery are statements that everything has been paid in full. Oh, no, friends. Remember that rich man? who for all his sins finally was brought to the grave. And maybe, maybe he thought at that time he would have rest, but then he opened his eyes in hell. And that was just the beginning of sorrows. When we say death, we need to understand biblically, it's not limited to the grave. That's just the beginning. There is a death that never dies. And my friend, 
If you do not have your sins forgiven, if you die in your sins, if there has not been another transaction in your behalf, you must pay. And you must pay dearly. Oh, how many of the damned in hell, if they could only be given a moment to testify before us this morning, they would urge upon each and every one of us not to be so stupid and senseless as to think that you will live forever. And that in the worst scenario, if you breathe your last, you'll at least then be at peace. It's a fearsome thing. But this is behind the prophecy. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. This was a weighty transaction that was so necessary because of the weighty need. And the payment. Because... Because of the greatness of the debt, the payment had to match. Wounded, bruised, stripes. Think, dear friends, of the Lord Jesus Christ as they struck him again and again and again. As they placed the crown of thorns upon his head. And those long, unforgiving Palestinian thorns punctured his flesh and he bled. And then he had to drag his own cross, every lurch, every stagger forward was just a painful foreshadowing of what he would endure only moments ahead. And even then we have no idea of the pain, not only of the nails and the wrists and in the feet or the spear in the side, dear friends, but that the wrath of God was being poured upon him. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Oh, friends, this was a weighty transaction indeed. His pain for our peace. Second, this was a vicarious transaction. A vicarious transaction. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed The Christian vocabulary necessarily introduces things that we are not as familiar with, but which we must understand. And even if we don't lay hold of the word itself, we need to grasp the concept. The idea of Christ's death being a vicarious legal transaction in that it was a legal substitution. Many stood bound over to the law for payment. Our transgressions, our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. There is the one and there is the many. This is a fundamental concept within the Bible. It is at the very root of our problem, and friends, it is at the very root of our salvation. These sinners, these lost sinners, yet nevertheless loved by God the Father, given over to the Son from all eternity, there was a special arrangement between God the Father and God the Son. 
by which the Father assigned this number of sinners, each and every one, to the Son of God, and that in time he should, having been bound to them in a legal relationship to represent them and to transact business for them, that he should come in time to Calvary's cross to actually do the business. So the cross is the business arrangement that had been designed beforehand. But it wouldn't count. It wouldn't count had there not been this legal arrangement beforehand by which the Father assigns to the Son this responsibility so that he transacts business in their place. And this is found all throughout the Scripture, and it's on the very surface of this entire glorious prophecy. Consider verse 8. He was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. That presumes that there was an arrangement. That presumes that the legal documents, can we put it this way, they had been drafted in advance. That the arrangement was in place, that all parties were in agreement, at least the Father and the Son. The sinners were helpless themselves. They could plead nothing. Verse 11, by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, one for the many, for he shall bear their iniquities. He hath poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered, that's, that's legal language. He was numbered with the transgressors. He was not a transgressor himself, but he was numbered with them, legally designated in the category of transgressors when he had no sin. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He was wounded for our transgressions. Really, you can, for shorthand, just simply think of that preposition for. Him for me. I die for you. He was bruised for our iniquities, not his. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. He was not bound to pay in his own person. He was wholly harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. He had no debt to discharge. Just remember that when Jesus, the Son of God, came into this world, he came into this world as, can I put it this way, not eligible for death. Capable of death, but not eligible for it. It was not his. He had done no wrong. He had never struck his brother, insulted him, dragged his name through the mud. He had never been cheeky and talked back to his parents. He had never looked upon a woman who was not his to lust after her in his heart. Never. He had never been slow 
to do what God wanted him to do. He never dragged his feet to church knowing I've got to do it because it's the right thing, but I sure don't feel like it. He didn't have that. He loved to come into the presence of God. He didn't have the struggles with prayer that you and I have. We go on for five minutes and then we reproach ourselves and say, what have we actually said to God here? We've just been rambling and meandering, repeating ourselves with these vain repetitions like the heathen. It's my heavenly Father. How can I treat him like this? Never, never did Jesus ever have to confess sin. And you and I, we have to do it every day. And if you don't do it every day, you're insulting God and you're lying to yourself. Whoever says, says that I have no sin, he calls God a liar, says the Apostle John. No, in the same breath as you pray, give us this day our daily bread. Say also, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He was not bound to pay before the contract. And he was not bound to pay according to a contract without his consent. We are not to think that when he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities that this happened against his will. No, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. He willingly said yes to the Father in all eternity. He said in the prophecy, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me. I come to do thy will, O God. I am here, Lord. Send me. Send me. Oh, Father, you love them with an everlasting love, and I love them. I have loved them unto the end, even though they're dirty, backwards, backsliding, betraying sinners. I love them, each one, not for works of righteousness which they have done, but according to the free grace of God, the Father, and the Son, I will pay their debt. I will take their wounds. I will take their bruises. For their peace, I will forsake peace and bear the chastisement. And by my stripes, Father, let them be healed. This was a vicarious transaction. And he did it willingly. Think of it like this, if, if this still is somewhat abstract to you. Judah, when old father Jacob learned that the only way for his sons to go back to Egypt and to talk with the man on the throne was to bring the youngest son, Benjamin. And Judah knows that's going to kill a father. So what does Judah do? He undertakes the responsibility of the surety. Surety, S-U-R-E-T-Y. One who assumes the legal responsibility for another. I will be surety for him, and of my hand shalt thou require him. And so it was with Jesus. And so he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities according to the contract. Third, it was an unfair transaction. It was an unfair transaction. In this sense, it was unfair to the innocent one as a person. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. 
So don't be worried about death if you're not guilty about sin. Don't you, don't you try to say that God's being unfair, that my father eats the sour grapes and my teeth are set on edge. No, the soul that sins, it shall die. Well, in the person of Christ, as we have already said, there was no sin. And so being wounded was in a certain sense, it wasn't fair. They weren't his transgressions. They weren't his iniquities. We think of Caiaphas, who, without even realizing it, prophesied. By reasoning with his, uh, his religious uh, colleagues that, you know, he really has to be the fall guy. Because if we just let this situation alone, this is going to totally upend everything and the Romans are going to come in and they're going to just decimate and destroy us. No, we need a scapegoat. Nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. That was unfair. All his sufferings on the very surface of them were unfair. The wicked, vicious, degrading mistreatment and abuse of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of, the, think of one of those uh, criminals of the two that were hanging on the cross. They're both at the beginning just spewing out all kinds of nasty talk to Christ. But then one of them comes to his senses. And while the other guy is just continuing to vomit out all that trash, he said, you close your mouth. We, the both of us, are getting what we deserve, but this man has done no wrong. Nothing deserving of death. And then he turns to Christ and he says... Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. How easy it is for us to complain about things being unfair. All the way she's treating me is so unfair. What just happened to me, that was so unfair. No, friends, you have no idea. This was unfair. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. You know, what's really unfair is that we should enjoy peace. That we that we should be healed when we have done the wrong. The Lord, if he was going to be fair, would damn us all to hell. You want fair? That's fair. God will avenge the quarrel of his covenant. Why? Because cursed is everyone that continues not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Lachlan Mackenzie, a, a great... Presbyterian preacher in Scotland some generations back was preaching on a text, uh, the text in 1 Corinthians 10 that Christ was the rock. And when Moses struck the rock, this was uh, an image, a type of Christ being struck. And by the striking, water flowed out that sinners may be blessed. 
Now that's not fair for sinners to receive blessing. But, says Mackenzie, the justice of God found our sins upon him, and this drew all the curses of the law upon him. Every sin procured him a curse, and every curse procured him a stroke. He was wounded for our transgressions. And by his chastisement, we have peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Fourth, we have here a heavenly transaction. While it was unfair to the person of Christ... It was not illegal. Now, there's a difference here. Even though it wasn't fair to his person, it was a legal arrangement, and it was devised to satisfy God's justice. Again, remember that this was a free arrangement between the Father and the Son. It was not forced or imposed upon the Son, but He accepted out of love. And that's why He died, dear friends. He didn't die because He was forced by His Father. This isn't, as some wickedly say, cosmic child abuse. No. He took it, as Rabbi Duncan said. And he took it lovingly. What a heavenly arrangement. A heavenly transaction. Because God will not sacrifice his righteousness to forgive, but he will forgive. So his righteousness must be honored in the process. That's the gospel. The arrangement would secure the pardon of a sinful world and at the same time magnify God's grace. How glorious this text is as it leaps off the page. Grace and love and mercy gushing out of the rock of the stricken Christ. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Oh, sinner, will this not melt you? How long will your eyes be dry? How long will your soul be unmoved? How long will you continue your proud ways of self-righteousness? I'm not that bad. Never killed anyone. Never stolen. Well, I guess there was that one time. But it was so small. Is that how you think of your sin? Well, this is what God thinks of sin. Wounding. Bruising. Chastisement and stripes. But God will have mercy. God will heal. God will restore. For the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. There's that payment language again. The commercial transaction. Father, I will that those whom you have given me be with me where I am. And Father, here is the payment. Oh, how heavenly, how glorious, how wonderful. Fifth and last, this was a sure Yes, a finished transaction. Notice that everything in this prophecy is in the past tense. 
It's prophesying of things about 700 years in the future. And yet, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. You see, when God speaks, it is as good as done. And further, the prophecy itself was an audible echo in time of the eternal decree. Don't think that when Isaiah wrote up the contract that this was the first edition. No, this is a copy. The original is stored in the archives of eternity past. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And these words resonate with us all the more because in the fullness of time, God actually performed it. The Son actually wrought it. As Peter says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. He came. And he did not talk back, though he had every right to. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shears is dumb, is mute, so he did not open his mouth. He didn't resist. He didn't resist because he had to pay, oh dear friends, even more than that, because he wanted to pay. Close with the words of Durham, who says that the mediator's sufferings satisfied justice and is powerful to absolve, justify, and heal those, even the grossest sinners that come under this bargain and transaction as if they had actually suffered and paid and satisfied their own debt themselves. Oh, friends, let that sink in. That's what happens if we come under the transaction. You see, it's not enough that the transaction has been made. It is enough to satisfy the justice of God, but if you are going to actually Take that healing, that peace, that restoration. You must personally come under the transaction. Come under, as as Durham puts it, I love how he does frequently this commercial language, the bargain. The free offer of the gospel, it is this bargain. It cost him everything that it may cost you nothing. Oh, will you not strike hands? Will you not strike hands? Will you not take out uh, the pen and sign? Put your name on the dotted line and there is nothing to pay. Everything has been paid. And if you do, dear friends, it will be as if you had paid. As if you had suffered. Now, won't that touch you now? Won't that move you now? The Lord Jesus Christ has done it all. He ratified the contract by his own blood, and now he passes the document to you. And he gives you the pen... And he says, will you take it? Will you take it? Now be warned. It is the freest gift that will cost you everything. 
But if you surrender to Him, if you surrender to Him and let Him make that payment in your behalf, the Lord will give you such peace, such healing, that you will want to follow Jesus. And more of that this afternoon. Amen. As we come to the observation of the Lord's Supper uh, in our churches, following along what we would view as a healthy tradition, we have some words uh, immediately before the observance that has been called the fencing of the table. Note, not the building of a brick wall, but a fence so that there is proper care and caution. Not everyone who is able to partake should partake. And not even those who are true believers, but perhaps because of various prevailing sins in their lives that have not been resolved or maybe unresolved Uh, relationships that have been broken and stressed. No, leave your gift before the altar. Go your way and first be reconciled to your brother. Even those who are technically welcome and admitted to come may at times have to say, now is not the time. This is a very sacred thing. Because we are told by the Apostle Paul, let a man examine himself. And so let him partake of this bread. To that end, hear the words of Mark 12, 28 to 34. And one of the scribes came, having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said unto him, Well, Master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none other but he. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself, is more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And no man after that durst or dare ask him any question. It's easy when one becomes religious to become preoccupied with the outward observances of religion and miss the forest for the trees. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, reveals that in this particular uh, scribe, this, uh, this Jewish man who was devoted to the recording and the preserving of the Holy Scriptures, he has this question. Jesus answers marvelously with the first two great commandments. And he says, Amen. And to love God with all the heart, the understanding, the soul, and the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now this is very interesting because it gets Jesus' attention. You see, it's not... It's not enough to content themselves with the outward. 
got to be within. It's got to be real. And it's got to be real in this sense. That whatever I do springs from a heart of love. To love God. Now, that love will await orders. That love will accept specifics. You can't say that you love God. Oh, yes, God, I love you with everything that I have, and I love my neighbor as myself. But then when it comes, when it comes to the actual moment of decision, oh, now wait just a moment, that's a little bit too much. I mean, I don't, I don't think we need to go that far. No. The Ten Commandments are simply the specifics of the principle of love to God. And so whatever God says, that's what I want to do. Now, these two great words are very far-reaching because we know that according to the strictness of God's law, there is none. None that loves God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength, or any that loves his neighbor, wait for it, as yourself. When was the last time? For five consecutive minutes, you really loved your neighbor as you love yourself. When was the last time? For 60 consecutive seconds that you really loved God with all your heart. Nothing creeping in there and edging out love to God. You cannot serve God and mammon. All the heart, all the soul, all the strength, all the mind, that's what God calls upon us to do. Anything less is rejection of him. So, dear friends, know and understand that if you come to this table, you dare not come saying that I love God with everything that I have at all times perfectly as Jesus did. Because that's exactly what you would be saying. And you would be saying that this is not only redundant, it is pointless. And it's an insult to my righteousness. That's what you would be saying. Because Jesus didn't die for good people who loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Or their neighbor as themselves. No, dear friends... If you come, come as debtors. Come as empty. Come as needy. Come as having nothing to pay, for you have squandered it all. However, at the same time, if you will not only be not far from the kingdom as this man, but altogether in the kingdom, it's got to be more than talk. You can't say, Lord, I love you, and yet not do what he commands. If he commands you not to complain, you are not to complain. If he commands you to be content, you are always to thank the Lord and to rejoice in all things. If he bids you rejoice with the wife of your youth, and not look upon a young woman. You are to do that. If, you, if he bids you to go and to be reconciled to your brother, not to let the sun go down upon your anger, you do it because you love him. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not those things which I say? Now, friends... The elders have a responsibility to 
uh, examine and to visit with those who would come to the Lord's table, not, not because they're looking for perfect Christians. We've never found one. We are not perfect Christians ourselves. We're far from it. We are all needy lepers before the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not enough just for the elders or the church to say, yeah, that's a brother, that's a sister. You still have to have a sensitive heart. You still need to be willing to place your life under the light of God's word. And not to discover sinlessness, but to discover sincerity. Sincere faith. Sincere love. And love that walks as well as talks. Faith worketh by love. Now, if you've done what you should, or at least attempted to this week before coming, brothers and sisters, you will come like Father Jacob. You will come with a limp, and that's a good thing. Better to hobble along with a limp than come running and be rejected. If you find weakness in yourself, and if you, you don't love it, you, you despise it, you, 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 you say, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Well, if you, if you place a simple faith in Christ, then come. This table is to nourish and to strengthen and to encourage you and to empower you to go and to love him better. But there are only two people that know your own heart. You and God. So judge yourselves. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be condemned with the world. But if we, by faith and humbly go through that exercise... Looking to Christ, ten looks to Christ for every one look to ourself. Then we've not earned a place at this table. No, no one ever has. But we receive the invitation afresh. May God add his blessing to his word and his ordinances. Amen.